Lima, Delta, Echo. Lima, Delta, Echo. This is in between stations radio broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, USA. Hi, welcome to In Between Stations Radio. Um, to uh, tonight or today, as I always say, <laughs> depending on where you live or, or where you're listening. Um, uh, I just decided to. Uh, I'm going to take this. Uh, it was actually a, a two-hour show I did with a, a, another friend. Uh, I'm going to just take uh, a little, uh, a little bit over an hour of our conversation which uh, looks at my uh, new novel uh, timelines or Sarah and maybe get some insights into that book and you know talks a little bit about what the baseline to my whole uh, to, to in between stations is and my whole idea about things that you if, if, if this is your first time tuning in this will help you acquaint you with that and and maybe might be a little bit um, stuff you've heard before but for sure it'll give you a view of this new novel uh, Timelines or Sarah. So let's just go ahead with that and I hope you enjoy it and uh, love you guys and uh, we'll talk to you later and um, see you tomorrow night if you get us on shortwave radio. Uh, if not, um, then uh, you'll get these podcasts for better or for worse. <laughs> All right, bye. Here we go with the then with this uh, 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 part of the uh, two hour uh, broadcast I did with a, f- a friend on, on, on their radio station. So, um, Take care of yourself, and again, uh, have fun, and we'll see you. Bye. You know, surprisingly, I've gotten more reads and comments on my audio draft from people I don't know than uh, people I know. Not, you know, not, not counting you, of course. <laughs> hmm, really? That's, that's, uh, that's surprising. Yeah, I suppose that's to be expected. I mean, even with all the good books that are out there, you know, in, in the big world, the, the big successful books... Most people just don't seem to actually have the time to read uh, print anymore, at least at, you know, at any length. And if they do, they always read it quite quickly. Uh, and, and, you know, actually reading a novel that takes days, weeks, and sometimes even months, um, people just don't seem to have time to do that anymore. So they'd rather come home from work or, you know, if they're tired, and sit down and turn on the TV and, and watch something, you know, a narrative on there or a show on there. You know, just sit down there and let it just kind of like pour into your brain without asking any questions or, or, or doing any work. And I just, I don't have a lot of friends that, that read that much anymore. Uh, um, you know, maybe, maybe there's an exception to that rule, but, um, it, and even if you read the statistics, which, you know, publishers don't always want you to know, there's just not a lot of people actually reading books anymore. So then, um, you decided people weren't going to read you know, your book, The Words, then you could entice them maybe with an acted-out audio drama? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Timelines or Sarah, as you know, is, is a huge work. The The complete story or novel was finished, I think, over a year ago. But, you know, having the story done is a bit different than actually going back and editing the whole thing, which is a monumental task of trying to perfect the words and, and the narrative and getting everything to, to, to read well. I mean, sadly, and I, and I guess somewhat regrettably, um, I see now that I should, should have never released the first part of the book as I did, you know, publicly. I mean, I didn't release it to a large audience, to a smaller audience, and it's still, it's still out there. And, and a number of people are reading it, or, or I mean, at least listening to it. Um, but, you know, it had taken me five years to write that entire uh, novel, and I, I'd kind of had it. I mean, I went through it hundreds of times, and uh, and I just deemed it as kind of like so personal that no one was, you know, going to get this. And so I actually contemplated um, throwing it away. Really? Yeah, yeah. I just and, and then so I came up with this idea that um, before I threw it away, I, I would at least try to take part of it and perfect it and edit it and then release it. And, and I did send friends uh, part of a raw manuscript. You know, you're one of them. Uh, but I, of course, I sent you the, the, the full book. Yeah, I, yeah, that's right. But uh, I did send the first part of the book to uh, a manuscript to some friends. Um, so um, I spent uh, a month or so and then just did this kind of hurried-up version of the first part of the book. Then there's, you know, as you know, there's 
five books actually to the whole story and the first part really is just lays down the uh, some of the characters and what's going to happen later on and, and sort of works into that but I sort of rushed out this this raw manuscript um, that not too many friends read well, a few did and some really liked it others were a bit confused uh, and um, and then I decided you know uh, since nobody's going to read this thing because you know I, I'd had it up on the site and I, you know I wasn't getting a huge amount of people reading it a hundred or so and um, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to re- I'm going to um, release a- an audio version. So I went in and uh, now, now you're a a, a radio um, host, broadcaster, producer as well for uh, in between stations radio, right? Yep, that's the <laughs> that's right. So I, t- I took some of those ideas and, and that I use on my you know on my radio show and I in- and sort of put them into my novel. But it was just kind of a loosely not too good a done version but you know it's better than sitting there and listening or maybe it's not listening to some mechanical narrator um which is something i kind of do now if, if i'm in a hurry and i can't read something then i'll just listen to it uh, but i end up reading the book anyway <laughs> yeah but uh i i actually went to the site you have it up on and looked at it and it's still there I mean the audio version. Yeah, yeah. I I I left it up. Um, I, I think I even got one review. <laughs> and 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 I I think I'm just gonna leave that that there. Um, I don't know why. I I think it's it's kind of an it's kind of experimental, and um, it's kind of like saying um, you're, you're getting a little bit more than just a, a cold-hearted narrator reading this. Uh, Did you actually narrate? I mean. You, uh, I heard some of your voice uh, on the narration, but it seemed like to me you had other people and other ways of doing the narration. Yeah, right. You know, I just, I had, I wanted to just create some kind of a, a acted out um, play, I guess, with sound effects. I, I, I look back now and I, and I wish I kind of, I kind of didn't, I wouldn't have done that. Now, c- can I ask you uh, one of the questions I have? Uh, I mean, I liked it, but. I think some people might find it confusing that the the first three chapters, uh, maybe even a fourth chapter, you have these this you have this sort of like childlike narr- uh, narrator that um uh and that sort of narrates in a very slow, drawn out way, which I kind of liked, but I can see where some people wouldn't like sitting there and going through this excruciating. Uh, narration <laughs> yeah um you know that that was actually the before i even wrote the book i did those first three chapters i think later on i actually have two uh children a boy and girl uh you know doing doing the narration but um it was kind of a strange thing um i I decided, you know, I, I worked in this environment for years with uh, people with special needs and mental disabilities, and I sort of learned this way of listening to people that talk, uh, often talk very slow, and it became this sort of art form that I think a lot of people miss out on simply because we talk so fast, uh, and, and often we don't even listen. And, um, and, and I thought, too, from a child's perspective, Excuse me. Um, from a from a child's perspective and a child's mind, I think I wanted to introduce that into the first uh, two or or three chapters. You know, the one with the chalkboard and the teacher, uh, and um, then the crossing. You know, which is the uh, the key to the book, um, where where David, um, the little boy David, um, gets gets um, hit by a car, and and then everything from the novel progresses to some point backwards from that point. Yeah, that, and that, that's the thing that you kind of um, miss out when you don't read the entire book, I think, um, is this, uh, this, this kind of going backwards from um, this, you know, this incident called the crossing of this, uh, this where David gets hit and Sarah, you know, remains um, alive. Uh, or, or 
or at least that's what we think. Yeah, um, it's it's kind of a complex novel. I mean, it started out as a workbook, and um, and then became a, a sort of narrative. I mean, it's, and as you know, it's 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 it's, it's a pretty uh, intricate story, and you get to really know Sarah and her family. You don't really get to. Um, know David as much. He's, he's kind of a mystery, but you really get to know Sarah and her Jewish mother and uh, non-Jewish father and all little mysteries that tie into that. Uh, and, oh, and, and you know, Dave, I might mention to you that this, uh, Sarah has a twin sister of sorts that shows up in the middle of the novel. Oh yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, one of the more intriguing parts of the book. Yeah, I, I certainly liked it. Um, uh, it's a little strange. But it's it's interesting. Um, and then and then also, I, I think when I read the uh, the whole manuscript, you sort of are moving in and out of dreams, which seems to be a, a, a big part of your novel. And I guess you know, and I know you, it seems to be a big part of your thinking in general. Yeah. Um, I mean, it started out as this uh, sort of uh, workbook, this uh, this you know detective. Uh, book and uh, and you know sort of my my whole idea on on dreaming and 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 realities and are we actually in a dream or a multiplicity of realities and uh, our awareness is not too good on that but but we we sense that um, there's this sort of like you know live you know we're we're in a dream and the only way you know that you're in a, in a dream is when you wake up. Yeah, and that comes to my point, uh, you know, knowing you like like I do, um, this uh, strange idea that you have that everything is, is in life is, is a dream. Yeah, and I think I think the book is based on this long-held childhood idea I've had. I, I mean, I, I've had it since I was seven years old, that I'm in this sort of, uh, that I've died or I'm in this Bardo state, you know, Bardo, the the Buddhist concept of uh, after you uh, lose your body, you go into the state, uh, this in-between state before you uh, are reincarnated and go into another body. You're in this sort of Bardot state, and it's it's so uh, um, it's so real. You can get trapped there for a long time, thinking that this this is um, this is your life, when really it's this sort of ghost-like reality that you keep bumping into all these um, sort of um, deities and angels and and markers that tell you hey you know you're not really uh you're not really alive you're dead and you need to like get past this and then go into your next uh reincarnation i guess that's the sort of the concept of bardo i'm not so sure i support that but i i had this idea when i when i was a boy i was in it i'm in a dream and this whole event of my life is that i'm living now is in a dream what wait so so you you said that um, you know we were talking before we started that that you had had a, a serious illness when you were seven years old, and you're living in I think you said the capital of Iowa. Yeah, my family had moved to uh, Des Moines, Iowa, in uh, 1966, and I got this horrible uh, high fever. It almost killed me. From you know I had a, a really serious case of the red measles, and. Um, I actually uh, lost consciousness. I mean, the fever was 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 so high that I received uh, brain damage. I had to I had to learn how to walk all over again. I mean, you know, one foot in front of the other. It's a pretty serious thing. And at some point, I was uh, unconscious for a, a really long time. And um, you know, and, and and in a hospital as much as I can remember, and then having to get back to somewhat normal life going back to grade school but first I had to learn how to walk again it didn't take too long but I still had to do it and, and I had uh, results of that illness lasted for years you know athletics was always a real difficulty for me at least some parts of it because I, I always had a problem with my uh, you know how to catch a ball and how to, how to hit a ball with a bat and run to the bases the running wasn't so hard as just getting that eye and hand coordination back and it took a it took a long time, uh, and I still have uh, uh, defects and artifacts uh, from that illness. Right, but you were, you were telling me that um, you had this idea that you're you're still living in 1966 in Des Moines, Iowa. 
almost sounds like a Philip K. Dick thing. Yeah, yeah, this, but this is uh, <clears throat> long before I'd ever read Philip K. Dick. I mean, this is an idea that I had when I was uh, seven years old. And, uh, and I think the, the, the Greenwood Elementary School plays into that because that's a school, it's still there, it's a 100-year centennial school in Iowa. Um, it's, uh, it's a place I actually went to school. And, um, and, and Sarah and the character David, um, that's where they, they go to school. And so, um, you know, I'm in a hospital. Uh, I went into a coma. And in that coma, you know, of course, most comas, you're, so, you're unconscious, completely unconscious. Not even dreams going on. But I think some, some states there are dreams going on. So I, be, I became convinced when I was a little boy, I never, I never woke back up for various reasons and that this and that I kept living this life that I'm you know from when I was eight years old on to now I kept living uh, my life as as it was and is in this coma and um, in, in 1966 in this in this hospital bed in in Iowa and that that pops up in the book right because I, I, I mean that pops up in various chapters it goes back to this little boy being in a hospital bed. Right. Yeah, that's a... That comes in and out of the uh, the story in the book. Uh, and, and then, of course, you're moving in and out of the dream state, and you're moving in and out of different lives and possibilities of what David and Sarah could be or could have been, or did they live in all these different lives, and uh, did they keep coming back together, you know, keep being reincarnated as the lost lovers trying to find each other or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really uh, interesting part to your book. and um, I, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I like the fact, even though it was a, a rough draft you sent me, I like the fact I could just kind of sit and think about that. And you have a, a lot of philosophical ideas going on. You have alchemy going on, you know, traditional Middle Ages alchemy and that process of, of creating the whole world from the, uh, from, uh, you know, the couple, the Adam and Eve couple, you know, the, the, the soul and Luna couple. Yeah, right, the, uh, that you can create the whole universe, you know, that the universe is created when you become conscious, that everything is a part of that. And maybe it's not that important to know if you're dreaming or not, other than the fact that you're living in this uh, reality. You know that, and so the premise, you know, you know, you asked me about is like, uh, you, you know, you really can't prove that you're uh, not in a dream. And I think this comes up in my in between stations radio a lot. Uh, people are like, well, you can pinch yourself, and you know, if you get smacked in the head, that and 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 it bleeds, that proves that you know that this is real. You know, and I. And I've said back, you know, you know, and I say back to that and have in several of my in-between stations episodes that, uh, you know, and I have a, as you know, I have a real, uh, I have a quite a, re- a retention for dreams. You know, I've wrote hundreds, if not thousands of dreams. I've recorded them. And, and the details in dreams are so real. Uh, the breathing, the landscape, the people, the experiences that you don't know, uh, that you're even dreaming until you wake up. There's no, uh, I mean, I, you can get hurt and you can bleed and you can be sad and you can be in love as much in the dream world as this one. And so there's no real way, you know, and I, I've said this over and over, to really prove that you're not in a dream. And all these rational, and I have some friends that are scientists and materialists, so to speak, that, that say, well, you can, you can prove this and prove that, and, and that's just a, a figment of your mind. And I always go say, well, what's not in your mind? So were you in a hospital? Uh, yeah. You know, as, as, as much as I can remember, um, my stepfather seems to have a faulty memory on this as he's gotten older. My mom was, you know, until she died, she, she had a, a good memory for all this. And so for a time, I was in a hospital, and... Uh, um, yeah, I was unconscious. I don't know if, I don't think I was ever in a coma, but I, there was a long period of time where I was not conscious. And I can still think back on that and still remember uh, some of the de- details of that. And, this, and, that, and I sort of re- flash back in my book, you know, David, the character David in the book flashes back to these, um, these childhood uh, sequences. And so... Um, yeah, you know, I, I noticed that. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting how you have this life that David and Sarah are living. And by, by the way, David doesn't seem 
the character in the book doesn't seem that much based on you, actually. Yeah, he's taller. He has a, you know, you know, we've both been to a war. Uh, I mean, obviously, he's based on me to some degree, but I, I had to, to 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 leave that to get an objective uh, view of a good story and this little detective game I'm playing with dreams and reality. I had to give uh, David his own life uh, objectively and not be too too much like me. Uh, so and allow David and Sarah to kind of have this private world they live in and it gets really detailed yeah i noticed that it gets extremely detailed you go you know you're in their, their house uh, you're in their conversations uh they have a dog and you you do have a real dog is is your dog in the book yeah gunner's in uh, he's called little brother he's uh he's a key player in the book so and, and i mean it is it does take place in flagstaff and there's a history of flagstaff and there's a prominent family that lived in Flagstaff, that are major players in the book as well, uh, and that's 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 interesting too. And there's some, I mean, there's some real history in there and real people, uh, and it's in, into this 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 reality and, and world that um, David uh, and Sarah live in. So Hugh Everett and uh, the many worlds uh, interpretation of of, uh, of quantum physics. Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of where, that's kind of your belief, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, yeah, that whole thing with, um, you know, the Copenhagen uh, meeting uh, where Niels Bohr's, uh, you know, sort of lays down this whole foundation of um, that quantum physics is, uh, you know, a particle can be in, an atomic particle, uh, you know, in the quantum world can be in two places, two different places at one time. And, um, that's just kind of how it is, you know. It's as strange as that whole setup is, and uh, that's part of the Copenhagen um, idea. I, this this particle, you know, this photon or whatever it is, can be in two places at one time, and so you get this guy. Um, and I've talked about this in, in previous uh, broadcasts on my radio show, uh, In Between Stations. You you get this. Uh, uh, Schroeder come up with this whole idea to show how ludicrous that the, the Copenhagen uh, idea was that a particle could be in two places at one time. So he came up with this whole thing with the cat, you know, Schroeder's cat in the box. <laughs> and the cat's alive and dead at the same time. And, it, it, you know, if you don't lift up the lid, if you lift up the lid, then you find out it's dead. It's this whole kind of bizarre thing where the cat, by accident or by a time mechanism, uh, Releases this uh, radiate this radiation that that kills it, <laughs> and, or, or or it chooses not to, or some, some something like. Anyway, what what you know what Schroeder's trying to say is it's, it's it's just bizarre that the cat can be alive and dead at the same time. You know, it's just it's just ridiculous. Either the cat's alive or the cat's dead, and uh, so he kind of threw that at the Copen the whole Co- Copenhagen idea, and of course Hugh ever. The third <laughs> came along this brilliant physicist uh, that had degrees in, in chemistry and engineering, and decided to go into physics. You know, f- uh, decided to become a quantum uh, physics major, and, and, and he was just absolutely brilliant. And he came up with this whole idea that uh, you know, basically, uh, that there's many different worlds taking place at the same time that 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 vary. Uh, slightly and, and you can't really and these can these can exist side by side but you can't really go from one to the other um, you know Schroeder's cat uh, not only is there one cat there's hundreds thousands of cats doing different things and different versions of choices or no choices and, and of course you know some quantum physicists say that um, Everything, if you could, if you look at all the outcomes and all the, you know, all the things that have happened, it's all very predictable and it's, and it's fatalistic and, and, you know, everything's are deterministic and, and there's no choices involved. If you could see the whole process of the, of the equation, then, you know, everything is um, deterministic, you know, it's, there's no choice in the matter. And, you know, I've talked about this before, who cares? <laughs> you know. Does God know everything? Uh, can God make a rocket so big he can't pick it up? Uh, does God know everything? <laughs>
And if he does, then what does that mean in terms of, the, uh, you know, do you have free will or free choice? And my, you know, my thinking is, who cares? Because as far as you're concerned, uh, that's what life's all about. And do you really have the mind to even know all the, all the possibilities back there? All right, so so um, so Hugh Everett and the Many Worlds Theory, and, and you said there's what, 13 different, uh, there's several different ways to see uh, the quantum, the quantum world. And of course, one of the big problems is the, the the actual scientists themselves. Each time they observe something, it changes the reality of the of the atomic particle, of the photon, of the of the position that it's in, that you actually, by looking at something and observing it, you're actually changing the reality of the situation. And that, that's, that's a, a big problem in, in, the, in the, you know, the, the minute world of uh, the quantum. Yeah, right. And I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's sad that uh, Hugh Everett uh, died uh, virtually unknown. Uh, his son's a a famous musician, one of my favorite musicians. I had no idea that Hugh Everett the Third and 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 E were were in the same family. That Hugh Everett the Third was E's father. You know the Ills. <laughs> and um, it, fascinating. There's a fascinating documentary that he, he that E does. He goes and goes and meets these people that knew his father, you know, and he had no idea that his father was this incredible uh, genius that's comparable to, to Einstein now by many uh, physicists. Uh, a lot of physicists don't like to touch this, uh, this whole thing about the many worlds because it causes a very uh, irrational thing to happen. And so, um, anyway, it's, it's something, it's an idea I've entertained since I've been uh, small. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's nothing new. I mean, the Upanishads and things like uh, Hinduism, uh, other indigenous and Native American thoughts have, have long entertained this idea of a multiplicity of realities. Krishna on the, what, the lotus flower, and uh, as he opens his eyes, a world comes into existence, and as he closes his eyes, a world goes out of existence, and this happens for an infinity. So. Each time he opens his eyes, the world comes into existence, and each time he closes them, the world goes out of existence. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of a, yeah, that's how, that, that, that's that, uh, uh, Hindu thought is, is extremely interesting that way, and infinity is this kind of uh, sacredness, this divineness that you can even get trapped in, um, and eventually, you know, you need to let go of it and see that all life is this beautiful process of learning and growing and becoming one with that and not, like, getting too lost in the, the structure of the ego. Tell me a little bit about this whole thing with, um, with this Sarah figure that's in the book and, and then your kind of connection to it in, in beyond the book uh, in dreams and reality. Yeah, Sarah, you know, in parenthesis, that's kind of the name I've given her. It seems to be a huge key in all this uh, detective work I've been doing. <laughs> you know, maybe I should have been a philosophy major, huh? Because I, I've been so involved in this proving that, uh, I guess, that I'm actually uh, in a comatose state uh, in a hospital in 1966, Iowa. Uh, and this, I'm having this dream about reality now. So... Um, Sarah uh, pops up in all this, and I, and I and, and it really goes back to my dreaming because Sarah has become a, a key figure in my dreams and in the narratives. And uh, you know, I've talked about this before too. Uh, in my in my dreams, these very uh, hardcore realities have been there's have been substantial since I've been a boy. You know, the city, the town, the state. Uh, this whole life being acted out, and Sarah seems to always come up uh, in in these dreams. She's a um, a key figure, and um, so and, and then I, I started realizing, hey, you know, I've known this Sarah figure since I've been a little boy. She's been in my dreams, and I've been like searching for her. And and then I started getting this idea. Well, she's the person that. Uh, is your connection to, to, to everything, to the dreams, to reality. Uh, she's your uh, sort of uh, other half. And isn't that kind of like the whole alchemy thing, you know, where you have this kind of uh, genesis that takes place between the luna and the soul, the male and female elements, 
and then through them the whole uh, process of reality is created. You know, sort of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, right. That's that whole alchemy premise um, that, you know, and it's also in, in indigenous and especially Native American thought, you have these origin, the originator couple, uh, especially with Aztecan and um, Mixtecan ideals in, in uh, Central Mexico and Southern Mexico. You have this creator couple that merges up in all this, uh, usually uh, dear one and dear one, uh, t- uh, male and female. They have this, the name skips me, but th- through them the whole process of reality is created. And so these polarities of male and, and female, it's a really old idea. So I, I don't know if I knew about all that stuff when I was a kid, other than the fact that I, I was so intrigued by this whole idea of, is my life a dream? And if it is, what does that mean? And, and so I, I think the Sarah figure began to be this sort of uh, person that, this mystical person that would, would sort of pop up and say, hey, you know, Dave, here I am. And here's the possibilities of all the different realities that, that you and I have lived in or are living in or will live in. That, you know, through the advent of us being together, we create these realities. So that is that the premise of your novel? Yeah, I, I, I guess so. I mean, there is a, there's a fascinating story there, um, and, and it sort of ties into mythology and uh, and I, I think a bit of it's you know if you don't read much, uh, and I just started reading uh, Proust, uh, and you know his huge epic novel he wrote deals with uh, memory. Oh yeah, yeah. Proust is a um, wow. That's a that's that's thousand pages or more though. It's sort of like seven books. Yeah, I mean, I don't have intentions of writing something that complex, but Proust deals with memory and dreams. I mean, the opening of the book. Uh, I, I just started reading Proust. I'd never read Proust until after I'd written Timelines or Sarah, because it had been suggested to me, and I was like, wow. I mean, there's people like Thomas Wolfe, the American author, that deals with memory and dreams and um, how objects can set this nostalgia in us and, and, and sort of um, set off a, a past memory in our, in our mind, a sort of um, a deja vu of, of, of something that occurred before. Uh, you know, an object or something a person says or a piece of music. Um, and that's that's what Proust is involved in, and I find that really interesting. Is you know, I'm, I'm just starting out reading this amazingly uh, beautiful, uh, strange, and, and and kind of complex novel. I don't know if I'll finish it because I'm involved in other things, but yeah. And I think the author Herman Hess deals with this whole inner world, and, um, and you know, really. Um, Really, that's, that's you know, how much is an inner creation, uh, you know, within your own mind of the complexities because you're perceiving reality through your own mind. And how much is, it, is this other world that's beyond you, you know, that you were born into and all these things, are, you know, history is already taking place long before you were born. Or, or is it uh, a part of this uh, unseen you, this, this larger self the sacred self that exists that's beyond, you know, that the creator, that God is beyond um, ego, that God is, is, you know. Hey, can, can I, let me, let me ask you a question. You Have you done, uh, you, have you done hallucinogenic uh, drugs? <laughs> For, yeah, yeah, you know, um, I guess what I used to call them drugs, kind of, you know, um, earlier when I didn't know much about them or I was kind of a stoner or, you know, we're just doing stuff to get a thrill at high school or after high school and with my girlfriend, uh, um, you know, we're doing mushrooms. We're going, hey, dude, this is really great stuff. Uh, before, I, before I knew about that, you know, tribes had, have ceremonies and complex rituals uh, versed around things like mushrooms that are thousands of years old, hallucinogenic mushrooms, and uh, things like uh, ayahuasca and these really powerful hallucinogenic uh, plant medicines. You you say medicine. What do you mean medicine? 
Well, that's kind of the word that a lot of tribes use. I don't know if, if that's the proper English translation, but basically these uh, through horticulture, uh, through trial and error, they came up with, you know, with this mixture called ayahuasca, uh, yahe, uh, and um, it induces this fantastic, uh, these alternate states of reality uh, where, where you work through these mini worlds, you know, like the Hugh Everett thing, where you go into these, these worlds and these realities and you have a discipline. Uh, you have a, a path that you follow that takes sometimes 30 years to discipline yourself when you're in these these alternate states of mind, these, these fantastic states of mind that something like uh, Yahe or Ayahuasca induces, uh, which are not pleasant, which initially when you take this stuff, uh, like uh, um, Yopo uh, and uh, uh, um, Barola, uh, these are snuffs. Uh, versus actually drinking the stuff like you do with Yahe, uh, Datura, um, which they know how to use that plant. We, we've lost um, the ability to use it uh, in, here in, in North America. The tribes, when the Spanish came in, they sort of like uh, destroyed um, any kind of connection to that plant. I don't know why, I guess because of the Amazon basin, ayahuasca kind of stayed on. A lot of those tribes remained isolated, and even today still are isolated. And so the Spanish didn't have much pull on getting rid of that stuff, although they did try, especially with mushrooms. Uh, and then you get up into uh, Oaxaca and places like that where there's hundreds of different tribes and languages spoken in complexities thousands of years old. The Spanish were able to, to stop this whole... Uh, sacrament they call it uh, the mushrooms is used in this very spiritual and religious um ceremony ceremonies uh and so and you can read through some of the spanish chronicles by some of these famous historians that you know that talk in detail about you know these heathens and these satanic individuals that go into these crazed states of mind <laughs> you know the vision itself um, is nobody has a monopoly on it. I think you get, you know, each religion likes to say its founder uh, had this fantastic vision, or a lot of religions, you know, Buddha, Muhammad, um, Joseph Smith, and Mormonism, you know, it, it goes on and on. But some of the, the, the vision of the heavens or creation is nothing um, new. It's thousands, tens of thousands of years old. If you look at the cave walls, and I've talked about this in previous episodes of my radio show, that once you've done these, these powerful hallucinogenic uh, plant medicines that these tribes use, like ayahuasca, the, the, the signature of the beings that you come in contact with uh, are on these cave walls. And immediately when you start looking in detail at the cave walls uh, in South Africa, especially in uh, is it Spain and France, you see uh, the signature that, uh, of these sacred, uh, frightening, uh, interdimensional beings, they're there on the cave walls and you know immediately, hey, these guys <laughs> were involved with hallucinogenic rituals, uh, you know, mushrooms, and, 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 and here's the thing, you don't even need to do that stuff, uh, especially when you, you read the history of uh, famous, famous mystics uh, like Jakob uh, Boehm and uh, um, you know, that women have been involved in this uh, through fasting and prayer. They have these fantastic visions. So I think uh, founders of religions like to feel like they're, uh, and you know, that's okay. If that's your direction, I think that's the path they've laid down, then maybe you should follow that. Uh, and it goes into the many worlds theories that, and the different types of realities. Maybe that's the best path for you to follow. And maybe you shouldn't question it. But some of us do, and, and some of us have had these radical experiences. You know, I used to like to say to my uh, to my Mormon friend, a religion that I grew up in, that I'm, I'm very fond of and love, but I'm no longer, uh, sorry to say, a member of that, just because it didn't really um, work out for me, but it works out for lots of people and have beautiful lives. Um, what do you do when you have your own first vision? You, you mean like the uh, first vision of... The Mormon founder, um, uh, Joseph Smith? Yeah, 
you know what happens when when you have your own you know this this uh, this miraculous the heavens open up you see the creator uh, things like that um, you know and that's what these plant medicines do um, they, they you see things like this uh, what, what does that mean where does that put you and especially out of context of that religion or any other religion and you know often these mystics uh, through thousands of years have had this similar experiences and often they're outside of the religious format so um, and, and generally too they stay in that you know they, they don't get too radical not all of them I mean Jonah Ark and some people uh, it was, you know it was consequences you know to uh, to having these visions and then speaking out against the the you know the religion the baseline of your culture that you've grown up in uh, most of the mystics stay in that format they just have this you know uh, like Jacob Bohm in Germany uh, he stayed he stayed in the Protestant format although he was ostracized by some of the main ministers in town because he has these thousands of pages and doctrines and and uh, what heavens like uh, celestial beings are like uh, the word the matrix was uh, he come up with that word, the ungrunt, the unground, uh, and you know, it was just he had this thousands of pages of fantastic visions that he had of the heavens and of God. Uh, that really unsettled a lot of people, even in the you know in the German uh, time period in the 1620s, when you know Protestants have, bro have broken away from the Catholicism, had revelation, had their own uh, personal experiences. Uh, that even that was a bit too radical for a lot of the ministers of the day, uh, you know, in Germany, where, where, where Jacob Bohm was from. I mean, you, you, when you have, uh, when you're in one of these ceremonies, or you take these plant medicines, and you have these profound experiences, and they're not pleasant, at least the initial stages of them are generally very unpleasant. So it's not recreational. There's a real heavy price to pay often with this stuff. And that's why these medicine people, the jaguar shamans, the Euripery uh, cults, as they're called in the northern Am Amazon basin, um, have uh, very serious disciplines that take years and years of learning and know-how to navigate through these extremely complex realities and realms that take place when you're in these... Uh, in these sacred worlds that, that ayahuasca introduces you to or helps introduce you to. Right. You know, uh, we, we got off the subject of, of Sarah. So, so Sarah, in, in your book, is part of this whole idea that you're looking for this other... At least that's what you told me. When we, you know, when we talked off the air, you're looking for this other um, person that has the sort of the missing part of the puzzle. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, I think when they, when David and Sarah come together, at least in the book, uh, they dream a lot. And then when they dream, they go into these other historical realities or situations that that could have happened or might have happened. And the book constantly, although there's a main narrative, the book constantly offshoots into these other realities, which ties into uh, the narrative itself eventually. And then, you know, Sarah trying to uh, save David's life. I'm giving away some of this. I shouldn't give it away too much. Now, I know in the, uh, the manuscript you sent me, it's not in there, but then you said you, you actually may still put this chapter in that uh, Sarah goes to uh, South America and has an ayahuasca episode and experiences uh, this radical uh, vision. Um, uh, can you... Uh, can you uh, elaborate on that just a little bit? Yeah, um, I'm not sure I'm going to put that in there, um, you know, because I, you know, my own personal experience is uh, with, you know, these plant medicines uh, as well as dreams. And, and they're at the base of that, at the very, you know, at the baseline of both of those experiences, you know, the unconscious dreams you have when you're asleep and um, the ayahuasca experience, there's a, familiar, a familiarity there, and that may be due in some part to what is referred to as a spiritual um, you know, molecule, DMT. But it's important to realize that the DMT combined with the processes of the actual living plant. People like to separate the DMT and do it straight, um, and I've had some bad experiences with that. I just feel like it's 
um, you know, not not the route to go. You really need to have the plant. Yeah, and so can I also ask you, um, so uh, obviously beyond all this, Sarah is is the key uh, to uh, helping you understand uh, this multiplicity of realities that, you know, like, like you were saying before we started the show here, that um, it, it really boils down to not all these multiplicity of realities, but that you have this baseline of, of love and uh, caring and of creativity and that you can experience that through this this unusual relationship this this romantic uh love that seems to be uh that seems to be beyond multi multi-dimensional reality that seems to be beyond that the whole process of being alive and having it satisfying uh am i wrong in this uh yeah the whole you know the whole thing uh, is is being with this this person and you and you create these realities and you grow and you and you learn and and uh can i ask you um and, and this kind of comes up when you read the book um is is sarah a, a twin uh a, a a lover a wife uh i mean who who is she yeah that's a um that's a really good question because i'm not sure i fully understand that and that's part of this whole detective work i've been doing because you know she's been around in a ghost form or sorts of my dreams and this feeling that she's always there has been around since i was conscious you know since i was a little boy i have had this uh longing for this companion uh and and uh, the, the the longer time goes the more familiar i've become with her uh and so yeah it's it's a mystery and 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 she's a critical part of the uh, equation but I, I think I think when I wrote the novel uh, I wanted it to to be something that, that not only explored my own life in, in a fictional objective format so I could look at it but explores the you know the potential uh, of, of you working in the um, the idea that there are all these other realities and what does that mean you know and I, I, I sort of I have a friend you know he's telling me he's like well, there's, there's all these different realities and we don't have to take this one serious. And I'm like, oh, that's like... See, that's what these uh, jaguar shamans in the Amazon basin know after thousands of years of using ayahuasca and being involved in these ceremonies. It's a very spiritual endeavor and work that you need to take completely, deadly serious. Uh, and and so it's... it. it it's something that uh, is not recreational. It's a life's work. It says, you know, it's you know, work out your your salvation with fear and trembling. I think what uh, what these tribal uh, situations do is they open you up to that, and and then they also sort of break apart this this nine to five reality. Oh yeah, you know, we we talked about this. Explain uh, your your thoughts on nine to five reality. Yeah, it's it's. You know, it's what we are now. It's like uh, you work too much. You have all these mortgages and loans. Uh, you have two or three jobs. Um, and, and, and you really never come to the end of it. I mean, you're always hoping for retirement. you got that uh, a week or two on a vacation every year. And you're always looking forward to that. You're always thinking about it. And when you're on the vacation, it's really great until that last two or three days when you finally have to come home and get back to the grind. You know, the nine-to-five realities become so heavy with gravity. The, you know, the so-called American dream has become so unreachable. And there's so many homeless people now and people that can't pay their bills, you know. So, nine-to-five reality, something has to give. It's all become way too much. I mean, at this point, this conjuncture in our American history, uh, it isn't possible for most people to have the American dream anymore. You know, that we have this upper uh, 4%, 5% of people that are really enjoying, you know, the agony we're going through, uh, the difficulty we're going through, that banks and loans and, uh, you know, corporations and blah, blah, blah are all linked. And, and, and you can't, as, as a normal everyday citizen, you, you, you can't get out of that. In fact, these people don't want you to get out. I guess that, yeah, that, and that's sort of become my whole... Um, orientation uh, to wake people up I think in my experience uh, you know 
and I think this book, Timelines or Sarah, is part of shaking up this 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 comfortable uh, this this couch you're sitting on, uh, this this boredom you're having, this 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 pain that you can't get out of something, uh, you know. And I bring this up a lot, like Philip K. Dick, the author, calls it the Black Iron Prison. No matter what time in history, you're not getting out of it. And, and I, I really disagree with that. Uh, and I think a lot of tribal formats, uh, they didn't have a problem with this. I mean, they had their own problems, but not, not with this kind of reality we're faced up with now. Even with, and with computers and technology even making it more difficult to get out. Because the people writing the programs and the uh, supposed artificial intelligence are the people that want us to stay in this, this, this place, to keep working, to be enslaved to these processes and uh, these difficulties. And, you know, we have people who are suicidal and there's no way to get out, you know. Um, my, I think my thing is saying you can get out of this. There, there's a possibility um, that this nine to five reality is 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 kind of a lie. Uh, there, there's so much underneath it. And if you look at history, we often look at Western history. What do you know about Native American history? What do you know about tribal history that's actually tens of thousands of years old? What do you know about sixty thousand years of documented history that the Australian Aborigine tribes have? And there's a lot of these tribes. Very intricate knowledge there of the landscape that can be proven through fossilization, through geology. Uh, these guys have a long-term history that isn't a lot like our Western history. And we, and I think we tend to view the world from how we grew up and what we're taught in school and in our community. But how much knowledge did your parents and your school teachers have of, of Native American history, of tribal history? You know, and purposely, the conqueror has wiped that out. The, and, you know, you see this in the Spanish and with the colonial people. You, you really try to you go to that boarding school. You know, stop learning your language. Stop believing in these pagan rituals. Pagan is a word that we've come up with, that, that, that people come up with from one particular religion that don't want to, you know, and, and all religions borrow from each other. And you go back and study these manuscripts, the Latin, uh, you know, the Arabic, the Greek, you start seeing, and, and the Egyptian, which, you know, is uh, one of my majors in school, uh, reading Egyptian. Uh, you, you realize a lot of stuff got borrowed there. You know, for God's sakes, the... Uh, the Madonna, you know, uh, Horus and Isis. Uh, long before you're reading anything about the Madonna, the Egyptians have this stuff set down in hieroglyphics and their history. And, uh, you know, we, yeah, we all do that. But how much knowledge do you have beyond UFOs and sensationalism of real Egyptian uh, uh, culture? That they're a, a fantastic agrarian culture that went on for a long time. How much do you know about the Sioux people? How much do you know about the Hopi or the Zuni people uh, that have these long-term civilizations, these long-term tribal formats? Um, and so judging everything, and that's my thing, uh, my experiences have broke apart the 9 to 5 reality. First of all, starting with a war that completely shattered me uh, and coming home and, and seeing all these lies and all the propaganda and, and, and the, the death of indigenous people in the Middle East because we needed their resources. And, and, and then coming home and finding nowhere to go. You know, that my culture, my religion was largely an American one, based in patriotism, whatever that means, which I didn't have any when I came home. I had plenty when I went to the war. I had zero when I came back. And, and so there wasn't anywhere to go. And so I turned, I turned to the, the more ancient things. And I began this journey not only physically on foot, but to understand this more ancient format of human beings, the tribal systems, uh, long-term ones that are thousands of years old. They're still around. They haven't faded away. You know. So um, my thing is, you know, and I think with the Timelines or Sarah, is to... Is, trying to, to, to break up what you think is, is, is reality, what you think is, I mean, if it works for you and it's your culture, I say that's great. But to think it's, you're all shining at the top of the hill and you have a corner on the market, I don't think so. And I think we're starting to realize that as American citizens, that we have a problem here. It's quite serious. And uh, it's not working out. It's not the same thing that the original forefathers had or that the, the, you know, the people that first came to this country whatever that means, you know. Um, 
they did a lot of things and genocide took place and you know land was stole and you know the same conquer thing the romans did to the celts and that was the you know was done in australia to the aborigines you know uh, you know, we, we, we sort of like erase history and rewrite it the way we like. Like, you know, that's the whole premise, you know, of Orwell's uh, 1984. It isn't that it's this dark, dark uh, dystopia, but, you know, Orwell has some tr Orwell is looking at some le legitimate, profound truths. And for me, the book is saying, look, this, this radical uh, big brother, uh, you know, Oceana is possible in your world, only you think it's all normal, just like in Winston. You know, Winston Smith's world, everyone just kind of viewed that as kind of a normal way. Even though it was had some big problems, you just went ahead and did what you're supposed to do. And, you know, Winston Smith uh, is in the Ministry of Truth. He's an editor, like, like, like I am, like when I'm a writer, an artist. He understands that you do these things. You make propaganda to support the government's premise for power, for resources. And so, you know, and, and, and you know, like... Winston's told uh, history is a is a boot stomping on your face, you know. And I, and I know people get tired of hearing this, but you know, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to wake. Not meaning history itself, but the way you've been taught. You know, the the Irish people were were taken apart by you know by Christianity by 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 you know on one end of the argument uh, by Saint Patrick who was a missionary. There were no snakes in Ireland. Those were the indigenous religions. And then you see that coming out in these beautiful manuscripts in Ireland that the monks are hiding indigenous knowledge, indigenous communication through Celtic knots, through, you know, through these very ancient means you don't, you, you kind of hide it behind the Christianity. And I, I think Christianity is a good thing. I'm not saying it's bad, but we, it, it filters in with all the other stuff. My thing is we've reached a point in our history where we need to take this apart, and I'm saying there's so much more, and it's not a novelty idea. It's thousands of years old. The multiplicity of, the multiplicity of, of, of realities, the multiplicity of universes, the, there's so much out there we can't get it. The humans are not the top of the scale. That there's other, there's other life forms that are probably even more advanced than us, and, and plants may be one of those. And when you get this experience with, the, this fantastic experience with these uh, ancient plant men, uh, uh, with these yeah plant medicines, you meet plant consciousness of extreme intelligence. But he talks about the greys and the human-like aliens you meet. My experience has largely been unhuman, meeting life forms that are so advanced and so beyond me, I can't even see them correctly. Yeah, I, I think my thing is we've reached a point in, in, in our history where something's deadly wrong and we need to change the direction. A lot of young people are doing that now. They're questioning, I don't want to grow up like my parents. I don't want to have all these debts. I don't feel that I want to move in this direction. I'm tired of world powers always fighting over resources and wars and then they have somebody like Ukraine in the middle of that or Vietnam in the middle of that or the Middle East where I went. That's the middle ground for these two, for these, for these world powers to fight each other. And, you know, we're all sick of that. It's just, you know, how big can we get? Does everybody have to be America? I hope to hell not. <laughs> there needs to be variety. There's thousands of different cultures and languages, which now are disappearing uh, quicker than the culture itself. And when you lose the ability, you know, everybody's like, well, let's learn English. It's like, well... Let's go ahead and not learn English. We're going to force you to learn Hopi. We're going to make you go to boarding schools, and we're going to put you in jail, and everybody's going to speak Hopi. So how do you feel now that little by little all the English speakers are dying out, that you might be the last person in your whole neighborhood, in your whole country, that speaks English? You know, you look on the other side of the fence. Um, and so... Yeah, I just think that there's a whole beautiful, bright future is the possibility, but on the other hand, is the possibility we just keep doing this. We're so tired, we're so worn out that we just say, well, there's nothing I can do about it. That, I think, is bullshit. I think, I think there's a lot you can do about it. And um, I think it starts with you personally, with your, you know, with your health and, and you know, with, with the way you eat, with the way you think, with the way you, you look at you know, you read, you study, you get involved with different cultures, and you see that there's other ways to do things, not just the American way. <laughs> yeah, Dave, it sounds like you kind of, you kind of got, you kind of worked up there, buddy.
Yeah, you know, I, right. And I, I, I try to avoid that, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a life work, and, it's, and, I've, and I feel like I've come a long way, and I think it's, it's, it's difficult, and I think we're living in a time of extremism, and I try to avoid that because it gets so extreme. Uh, you know, like John Wilkes Booth was so convinced that killing, assassinating Lincoln would change everything. And that Lincoln caused all the, you know, this is a guy that come from a fairly normal, balanced family, and, and, and this beautiful actor, this great, talented artist, maybe the greatest actor in the, you know, in the United States at that time, become obsessed with that Lincoln was evil, that he needed to be destroyed, and to, you know, to he was going to assassinate him. And of course, you know, it all it all ended up being not true. It all ended up being this horribly sad event uh, not only for for the whole country not only for for Lincoln and his family but for John Wilkes Booth and his family and his, his sister who went through all these horrible things after her brother died and um, yeah when you get when we get obsessed with an idea that's that's that's, that's uh, stuck in a time period and stuck stuck in a political view it can be and, and, and doesn't see you know the future doesn't see the past you know it, you know you're in and you just you're locked in this extremism, and I think that's really dangerous. And that's where that's how you get the, a Nazi empire. That's how you get something like Rome decaying and falling apart. That's how you get, um, you know, you get these these evil supposed evil empires. Well, you know, it could be that we're starting to turn into an evil empire. <laughs> if you look from the outside, if you're one of those indigenous people in the Middle East or elsewhere that we've ripped apart, that you've you know, maybe in some ways we sponsored terrorism just by the sheer terror that we've caused and, and the, the amount of people we've killed. I don't know. You can't just blame the United States. A lot of it's it's the way the world's been working, and I think it has to change. And my thing is, um, there's a lot more to reality than you think there is. There's a lot more beyond this 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 wall that you built up that you think is your life and that everyone else should embrace. And that might be the problem: is you, we think everyone needs. We have the perfect system, and everybody needs to be this way. That's not ever going to happen with humans. I it just, it's you know, it's it's tyranny. Uh, and no matter what government does it, people need to be free. There's so many different ways to do something. So um, yeah. So Dave, timelines or Sarah? Will you uh, you're going to re-release the first part of the novel and uh, that's going to be in a more a better format? You're, you're saying. Yeah, I think I, I really uh, sort of let it go too quick and didn't uh, didn't think about uh, you know the consequences of doing that, and I still need to go over the narrative, and I maybe need to even release the whole book at one time, or at least in in sections. And I'm you know wasn't too pleased with the audio effort. I mean, some people liked it, I I, I didn't, and I didn't have the resources to, to make a movie or a, a real professional environment. You know, I'm limited. So, um, yeah, I, I want to release it, especially with the artwork, and uh, in, in a way that you can enjoy it and maybe let you read it versus more than listening to it. So you're going, Dave, you're going to get rid of the audio format of the novel? No, I think I'm going to leave that there, um, you know, let people look at it if they want, but I, I, I'm going to be more involved in letting the written uh, word go out, and then from there, uh, and, 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 and it you know, a more perfected, uh, at least perfection as I see it, um, so it can be enjoyed. Uh, and then, you know, that's what art is all about, is getting something out there that fits your criteria and that other people can experience. So it's not all inside of you, but other people can experience it too, and maybe you can even have a dialogue. And that's really my whole thing, is like um, shaking you up a little bit and saying, hey, this is my experience, and it might be a lot, it might be kind of radical from yours. Uh, and it's 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 an old experience. It isn't new. So, well, uh, Dave, I, I appreciate you letting me read the entire manuscript. It's it's a pretty impressive book. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, philosophy in there. There's a rhetoric, you know, that goes on with a lot of different books. You've obviously read some. You're a serious reader, and, and so you catch on to things that you might not catch on to in this novel if you don't read. And so. Uh, yeah, and so some of the things you you cover are in the book in the timelines or Sarah are yeah um uh, alchemy Middle Ages alchemy which is a very uh, complex and uh, actually uh, 
it's it's uh, involved in uh, getting PhDs now. A lot of people are actually studying uh, Middle Ages alchemy. It's just amazing. It's a very complex language, a spiritual connection, not just making things into gold uh, and pro and prolonging life. It's about actually become you know it's a, it's a process towards enlightenment, towards the Creator, towards making you know a better world through personal endeavors. A genesis of, of, of a beautiful life, I think, is the alchemy process. And David and, and Sarah is a, a studies alchemy, and that's part of, the, part of the book. And also there is dialogues with other books that Sarah and David talk about a little bit. Uh, there's some Egyptian mythology towards the end. But it's, it's still a personal and beautiful story, uh, and I hope people can enjoy that. And, and, and there is some fundamental truths in there. And I don't think it's going to like, um, it doesn't have a cozy ending. I mean, it's a, it's a nice ending, but it doesn't really allow you uh, a spoon-fed spoon narrative, I think. Well, thank you, uh, David. I think we're getting on that hour uh, time frame, and uh, we hope you come back again. And we're looking forward to uh, reading your, your novel, at least I am, uh, in, in a more perfected format. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah. All right, David. Thank you, and uh, we'll talk to you later. And and so, this fall or winter, we're look, we can look forward to seeing uh, a version of the book on Amazon.com. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Um, you can at least get it that way and, and and read it that way, so you don't have to come up with the cost of a book. And, and publishing is extremely expensive. And, and self-publishing is not very easy to do. You can do it, but uh, I think that's the route I'm going to follow maybe is the, uh, of, of buying the uh, digital book and reading it for a couple of dollars, you know, something like that. Yeah, so, so thank you. I, I appreciate that. This is In Between Stations Radio.